from the dark recesses of my unconscious mind into the glaring light of objective reality. You are listening to the Dark Mind Podcast. Friends and familiars, thank you for tuning in to another episode where we explore the boundless realm of dark literature and film. On today's show, we have a writer and publisher of gothic tales and neo-noir. His tales are dark and eerie and sometimes extreme. He's joining me today to talk about his novellas Deacon and Abigail, as well as the numerous talented authors within his small press, Last Waltz Publishing. So without further ado, join me as we delve into the dark insight of Damon Manx. Welcome to the show. Vince, thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Yes, sir. Thank you for joining me. I feel like I've already had you on the show in the guise of Jack Wells and Heather Miller, who are both authors that have been published through your brainchild, Last Waltz Publishing. So I'm glad to finally have you on the show to discuss not only your publishing company, but also your own writing as well. Excellent. I hope they uh, I hope they spoke well of me. No, they <laughs> <Yeah>. did. <laughs> Yeah, and when we weren't recording, they told me so many things. Yeah, I've got so much dirt up. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you do. Uh, yeah, you know, put them together, and I'm sure the stories were flying. Yes, sir. Well, so I wanted to talk first about your book, Hacked in Two, which is a combination of two novellas, Red Falls, written by James G. Carlson, and Deacon, written by you. Your story, Deacon, is a very meta experience where you don't quite know where reality begins and where it ends. So what I wanted to know was, have you ever gotten so immersed in a story that you've lost touch with reality and have had to stop and perform some sort of grounding technique? Well, you know, really, you hit the nail on the head with Deacon because the line between fiction and reality is so blurred in that story that so much of myself is actually in that story and so much fiction where isn't exactly me, but maybe a version of myself that I wish was me, okay. um, was brought into that, that, you know, it, writing that story drummed up a lot of my inner demons. And it actually, like, I, I lost a lot of sleep towards the conclusion of Deacon for a lot of reasons. If there was ever one story that actually, you know, put me through it, it was Deacon. And it's because, you know, I talk about a lot of the issues that I faced, you know, in my coming of age, in my misguided youth, you know, where <laughs> I speak about addiction and incarceration and divorce. And for the listener who doesn't know, I am Damon Manx, the author. In the book Deacon, there's also a character, Damon Manx, the author. So uh, that <laughs> version of me writing the story, who's also written into the book, is a cross between the reality of who the author really is and a fictitious version of myself. And so what kind of inspired you to go about it that way? I mean, on one end, you've got a solid idea for a story in the dystopian angle of the story that the writer is writing. 
what made you want to, you know what, I'm not just going to write a dystopian story. I'm going to somehow integrate the the tortured mind of the writer into this story as well. You know, for any story, for me, a story really isn't a complete thought until it's the combination of two complete thoughts. So James Carlson and I got together and we're like, hey, you know, let's write something that's kind of splatter, kind of extreme. And for me, that was stepping outside my comfort zone because I generally don't write that visceral Mm. and I don't generally rely on the description of gore or, uh, you know, that kind of carnage to grab the reader. And it started out as a submission. It was going to be called Gorgonized Chaos or something. (laughs) Yeah, that was where Deacon was going to be submitted. And I just wrote that first part Uh that, uh, you know, it's you should still write a story with that name. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that I don't wonder why that thing just fell apart. But, um, (laughs) you know, so I had written this first like real visceral introduction where you know this guy's going to town on these body parts with a pitchfork and up comes deacon to save the day and after that scene it was like okay so what happens next and i'm like i have no idea i don't know where do you go with that i (laughs) i've used every descriptive verb to you know talk (laughs) about body parts and the fact that it was so far out of my wheelhouse got me thinking well you know why don't you incorporate how far that is out of your wheelhouse Uh and it seemed like okay yeah that's where this story goes and the next scene is a beta reader reading the story and saying hey man why did you go so far out of the realm of what you're usually writing and hit me with this i mean it's good but it's just not what you usually write about so once i realized that oh, okay, this is a combination of those two stories, then I knew, you know, had an idea of where the combination of the two were going to lead, which is the tortured writer trying to write something that he isn't all that comfortable with. And in the process of him doing that, he digs up his own demons and has to face them along the writing process. So was that scene in the book where he's talking to a beta reader you drawing a conclusion for the story or was that an actual conversation you had with somebody when they found out you were writing a real splattery novella? Uh, no, it's, it's actually more so a conversation taking place between <laughs> kind of, Cause that would be funny if you actually showed this initially to somebody and they were like, <laughs> Damon, this just isn't you. I mean, it's good. And then you're like, you know what? That's going in the story. <laughs> Yeah, no, it didn't get that far. It's actually more so an argument between myself and myself. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's good fodder for a story, apparently. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And and, um, so the guy who's actually reading the story is Dylan McGuire. Mm -hmm. The guy who's writing the book is Damon Manx. And oddly enough, they both have the same initials. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I actually didn't realize that until the end. It's amazing how you kind of piece those things in there. You know what? I, and I'd like to say I was that clever when I wrote it. And probably subliminally, I was. I'd like to say I was. But it was actually Heather Miller who pointed it out to me. She goes, you know, like, all the characters in this book have the same initials. And I'm, <laughs> I'm like, yeah, they do. I'm like, yeah. But, uh, yeah, no, the book turned out to be more meta than even I knew it was as I was writing it, yeah. which I think is the best kind of head game. If you uh-huh. can even pull a little head game on yourself as you're writing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It sounds like you were being subconsciously clever if somebody else had to, had to point it out to you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like there were definite, there's definitely things I know that I did, you know, that I was trying to do as I'm manipulating the story and mm-hmm. hopefully taking the reader down this path where I can spring it on him at the end. But I think, you know, I was so involved with this one that things came out too, that I really didn't know were happening. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, because technically, you know, when you're the author, you should be in control of where the story goes. 
Mm-hmm. And I think to a certain point I was, but also there's this organic thing about a story where they just kind of happen and, you know, the process is hard to describe sometimes, you know, mm-hmm. I can't say that I was a hundred percent responsible for what came out on the page. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure particular people believe particular things, but there may not be like an actual location where the unconscious mind is, but we obviously have unconscious processes going on in our mind. And I think collectively, if we stimulate those in the proper way, especially when we're attempting to do something creative, some insane things can come out. Yeah. Carl Jung would definitely say there's more to it. Mm-hmm. than just what's going on on the surface. Yeah, mm-hmm. you hit the nail on the head. Absolutely. Well, you mentioned quite a few personal demons that you've had to deal with. One of the characteristics of the tortured writer in the story is, of course, alcoholism. So if it's not too personal, is that something you struggled with? Yeah, actually, alcoholism and addiction, you know, definitely mm-hmm. Two of my demons right there just recently celebrated 10 years uh, clean and sober. Shut up. What date? Uh, it's actually Halloween. 8-26-12 for me, 10 years. Oh, man. Congratulations. Yeah. Wow, we're right there together. What? No way. Oh, Holy shit. And, that's uh, fantastic. And Jack Moody, a guy that I interviewed a few shows ago, he had just celebrated one year right around the time that I celebrated 10. So. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Scattered wow. all over the place. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So, well, I mean, congratulations to you. That's a great thing. Congratulations to you as well. How did you sober up on Halloween? Jesus Christ. Yeah. Well, you know what? Um, It's actually the the last time that I used a drink or a drug was on October 30th of 2012. So because the 30th was the last day that I actually used, I use Halloween as my clean day, my sober day. So uh, that would be correct. You know, actually how I did it, I did it in a jail cell. So oh, I didn't, OK. Yeah. So uh, that always helps. Yeah, that, that it helped. But yeah, it was pretty rough. though. <laughs> oh, God. You weren't detoxing in jail, were you? Yeah, I certainly was. Oh, God. Yeah. That's horrible. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Well, you know, the pain is memorable. You know, I remember the pain of being dope sick or, you know, being alcohol sick a lot more than I remember any time I ever felt good from it. Mm. So did you have to do like a medical detox? So, you know, I mean, I've tried medical detoxes, which never worked for me, but um, getting thrown in the county jail, going through it was something that totally worked. Nice. So, you know, I I get into the county jail. I'm going to be in there for a while because I screwed up on major level. Mm. And I go to the nurse looking for something to help me get through even if it's an aspirin or whatever, you know, hopefully, you know, I'm looking for more from the nurse and I go, look, I'm detoxing. I'm really sick. Could you give me something to help me get through this? And it's a male nurse. And he looks at me and he goes, we like to bring you down like a spaceship, hard, hot, and fast. Oh God. (laughs) I wanted to wring his neck. Yeah. Um, But you know, I came down, I came down pretty quick. Mm-hmm. You know, I was suffered some reentry burn. <laughs> I, yes, I did. Yeah. But you know what? It was enough to start me realizing that rock bottom mm-hmm. was where I was at. And I didn't want to shovel and I didn't want a trap door. I didn't want to go any lower than I was. Mm-hmm. And that was the point where, you know, things started to turn around for me. That's a place we have to reach when we're in that position. And I was gifted that opportunity. Yeah. Yes, sir. Why is it, do you think, when you think about the the archetype of the classic writer, why do you think so many of them were drawn to alcohol? There's other drugs as well. I think Stephen King did damn near everything. But it's almost like one of the writer's accoutrement is a bottle of something on the desk. Yeah, well, some people can drink and they can do it, you know, and, and have a glass or have a half a glass and put it down. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I don't understand that person no. <laughs> um, for me, you know, and probably, you know, for you as well, we drink or we use drugs to the point of insanity. And I think that it's just inherent for those of us who are born 
with that addictive gene, mm-hmm. that personality, that it's also the creative that we're drawn to as well. You know, I think both of them are imprinted on us. Disease, genetic, mm-hmm. mixture of the two. Not all creatives are drawn to it and not all addictives are drawn to the creative, but they certainly do go hand in hand for a lot of us. And yeah, I don't know why, but I just think they pair well together. I Didn't was go say, well for Jack Torrance. No. <laughs> <laughs> no. Yeah. And, and then, you know, how much of that is King projecting himself into mm-hmm. that story? Right. Yeah. Well, the story of Deacon involves a man that was at one time a priest who had turned vigilante, which is a great story arc because you've turned the righteous judgment and retribution of God into something pretty badass. For some reason, it brought Charles Bronson to mind. But where did you get the inspiration for his character? Did you draw from any classic examples, previous fictional characters, anything like that? Oh, geez, you know. Yeah, I love that Charles Bronson idea, too, because I kind of, you know, a long-haired, kind of grizzled-looking dude I pictured when I was writing. And, you know, I was pulling ideas of the look and the attitude of Daryl Dixon from The Walking Dead, but with a holy man mentality. And I didn't really go so far as me drawing it from anyone. It kind of organically came to be. At first, it was Deacon, the name. I liked the name Deacon, you know, Mm. and I wanted to build the character around that. And I knew a Deacon Glenn who used to come to the county jail while I was there. And he was a lean dude, used a little bit of him in my character design and mixed it with some of the people I've seen in some of these dystopian movies. He's long haired. He's thin. He's a badass. And kind of like everything I want to be, you know, (laughs) like I'm a bald guy, you know, I'm a little out of shape. I'm, uh, you know, older and and Deacon would just like represented, you know, this guy who stood for doing the right things, Uh protector of the meek. And I was like, yeah, this guy, uh, I kind of like everything I am in my dreams. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, when it comes to dystopian fiction, I can't quite figure out why it's scary. Is it because it's what could happen or what eventually is going to happen? But uh, what elements of dystopian fiction do you find the most terrifying? I'm just a big fan of that whole genre. Mm -hmm. I and I've written multiple stories on that. You know, the emptiness of the streets And the unknown, you know, what's in those burnt out buildings as you're walking down it. Or when you're first immersed in the setting and you don't know what it is that made that change happen. What was it a disease that swept through the world that devastated the population? Was it a zombie outbreak that turned the people into flesh eating monsters? Or was it just, you know, a virus that came out? picked off everybody one by one i think that the unknown is initially what draws me in Mm -hmm. and then the surviving you know everybody Mm -hmm. wonders you know hey would i be one of those survivors put into that scenario but we all like to think we'd be one of the last survivors running around with a yeah we'd be leading the pack (laughs) yeah with a pickaxe i'd be Mm -hmm. one of the first ones dead honestly (laughs) it'd be You'd be a Mad Damon, not Mad Max. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I just love that whole genre. The thing that did it for me initially was Night of the Living Dead, segueing into Dawn of the Dead. And then when the first time I wrote, read The Stand by Stephen King, that first book of The Stand just really set the mode for dystopian. And then reading books like Swan Song. And then I can, you know, get into my favorite series, which is one second after, two days later, that whole one. I'm forgetting the names of them. There's like four books in the series, like one year after. A really great story about what happens to the United States when a nuclear weapon is detonated over 
the country in the ionosphere and it knocks out the whole entire power grid. That's a great, great story. That's a perfect example of how dystopian hellscapes can be created by either the presence of technology or the absence of it. You know, technology with nuclear holocaust, we're all enslaved by Big Brother or the lack of it, the whole system that we depend on fails and everything just evolves into chaos. Yeah. Yeah. So that's called One Second After by William Forstchen. It's spelled F-O-R-S-T-C-H-E-N. Um, and there's like three or four books in the series. Uh-huh. Really gripping. Really gripping. Awesome. If we get the chance to check that out. Well, the second story in Hacked in Two entitled Red Falls was the first thing I'd read by James G. Carlson, and he definitely has the ability to terrify. Can you tell me a little bit about how you came to collaborate with him? Yeah, well, James and I, we were assigned to the same publishing company back in 2021, early 2021. That was the company that was going to be doing Gorgonized chaos or or whatever the name of that was and it was going under and we both saw the telltale signs of it going under so we decided to leave respectively each on our own and open our own publishing companies james was you know like i was drawn to his writing he was very insightful he had great prose and he taught me a lot and you know gave me a lot of advice and helped me a lot with my own writing as we both left the company and started our own we decided that we had to work together. And that's kind of how Hacked in Two came about. And it wasn't just a boom, let's do it. It was like, oh, yeah, let's do that. And, you know, a couple months later, oh, yeah, we really got to do that. (laughs) And uh, it sat with us and we kind of each had a story that we wanted to use for it. And, yeah, we finally put pen to paper and, and got that together, you know, and that book, I'm really proud of that one. I'm hoping that in the future, more people gravitate to Hacked Into and find it. I think it's worthy of more than what it's received. I think it eventually will. Yeah. So is Hacked Into, is that James G. Carlson's publishing company? Yeah, that's under Gloomhouse Publishing. Gloomhouse. That, yeah, yeah. Yep, okay. That's James's company. I knew it wasn't last well. So it's too far out of reach for me to see. But uh, <laughs> yeah. So as far as his work, what does he mostly gravitate toward? I've only read his contribution to Hackton 2, but I was looking at some of his other stuff and trying to figure out what his general genre is. He's got a cross between Bizarro and... Definitely. <laughs> yeah, you know, he's definitely got the Bizarro thing going on. Lately, he's dove into some of the extreme and splatter stuff, but he's just got some great old-fashioned storytelling about it, too. Mm-hmm. Seven Exhumations. He wrote Midnight in the City of the Carrion Kid. Great stories, but, you know, like going into that other plane of existence, you know, somewhere between our reality and the other realm. So I guess it's a bizarro, I wouldn't say meta, but certainly a cultish dark horror. Yeah, yeah I'll have yeah. to check his stuff out. Yeah, great writer. Amazing and continues to help me grow my brand to this day. My release for next year, which is a large compilation of short stories and dark memoirs, James edited it for me. Awesome. Well, out of all the stories you've written so far, whether that be a short story or novella, which one was the most mentally taxing? Definitely mentally taxing is Deacon. Okay. Without a doubt. Yeah. Just because, you know, a lot of it hits close to home. I write the character Damon, who has the same name as me, and he's going through dealing with the ramifications of his divorce. Mm -hmm. And he's also battling his sobriety as he's trying to write a story that he's not very comfortable with. Ultimately, he, you know, well, I won't say what ultimately happens. (laughs) You got to buy the book to figure out what ultimately happens. But uh, yeah, you know, the author who's struggling with all those demons, you know, which are demons that I've based on my own. And and I had a hard time sleeping when I wrote the final sentence of that book. Definitely took a lot out of me. So is that the first time so far, as far as what you've written, that you've really kind of poured yourself or at least your personal demons into the work? 
Well, no. I mean, I've got other stories that I wrote which deal with the subject of addiction, but are more so, you know, third person where they're about other people dealing with addiction. Then I've also written some creative nonfiction, which are kind of dark memoirs about some of the experiences that I've had. But for some reason, there's like a safety when you're writing a memoir, you know, it's kind of just a stating of the facts, you know. When I went into Deacon with it being a fiction piece and blurring the lines between fiction and reality, it became a lot more personal. Yeah, much more taxing because the character is a, I can't think of a better word than manufactured, but a sort of manufactured fictional form of you that's having your own introspective nightmare, so to speak. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. Well put. Well, all around, awesome, awesome story. I also read your story, Abigail, and I have to give you props for really snatching the rug out from underneath the reader's feet on that one. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> the yeah. story is about, you know, no spoilers, people, but uh, the story is about a man that has just come home from a date with the man of his dreams and finds a very strange looking child that's been abandoned on his doorstep. The reason you're able to make the ending so good is because you rely on the reader making assumptions by default, which is a real clever, effective tactic. So to me, in my detail-oriented brain, that would take some careful plotting. So am I correct that it took careful plotting, or did that story just kind of flow out in a pure stream of consciousness? There was a little thought as it was going on. I wanted to write a story, and I said to myself, you know, what would grab people right away if they found it on their doorstep? And I came up with the idea of what Abigail might look like. And from there, the rest of it just kind of fell into place. I pretty much knew what I was going to do to everybody at the end. So it was really organic in the way it came out. I don't recall it taking all that long to write it. You know, Abigail is told in 60 pages. Uh, it's a novelette, which I'm proud of it being that short and doing what it does in that short a period of time. Mm -hmm. Occasionally I'll get like the review that says, the only thing that got me is that it's so short, I wish it was longer. <laughs> and I think, you know, well, you know, if it was longer, it might not have that same sucker punch that it hits you mm -hmm. with. Yeah. But yeah, I kind of, like Abigail wrote herself, and I kind of knew where it was going to go long before I even got there. But I had a lot of fun along the way. I bet. <laughs> well, you've got an anthology that I have got to read called These Lingering Shadows, and that is under Last Waltz, right? Yeah, that's correct. I've had four of the writers in this book on the show and have read two others, so I know from experience that this has got to be good. How did you manage to get this stellar group together? I wanted to put an anthology together. And once I knew the genre, the kind of stories that I want, the idea of who should be in it really fell together quickly. And I just went and I asked them. I went around and proposed to them and everyone who I asked agreed. Well, how did you come across Christy Aldridge? Has she ever published anything with you guys? And no, she's never published anything with us and you know i want to say that heather brought christy to the okay. table i was yeah. curious about that because i've had christy on the show and as far as i knew she's just self-published she is an amazing writer herself yeah she really is and christy actually made the cover for this book too oh yeah 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 all um, right so yeah all the authors on this so the last waltz team which is myself heather miller jack wells Matt Scott and Diana only, we were naturally going to be involved in this project. And I said to each one, I said, you know, uh, you all get a recommendation, bring somebody to the table. Mm. And then, you know, I had a couple other authors in mind that I wanted to bring in. I'm not going to isolate any one, but there's just like some gothic tales in this thing that are, you know, just amazing. 
and what my own authors did on this thing. I'm I'm just so proud of everybody who was on this. Yeah, I got to check it out. Well, so tell me about this strange ethereal thing that seems to be forming on your Instagram page. I believe it was written by you and Mark Taus, is it? Taus, yeah. Yeah, um, called Arcranium. Yeah, so that's coming out in January, Arcranium. So four authors get together every couple months to talk about their recent accomplishments, who's winning what awards, what they're working on, what's going on in the horror industry. And they all write four different genres of horror. Mm -hmm. This takes place in the very near future. Okay. They're drinking and they're can never decide who's actually the scariest of them all because they all write something different. But, you know, this kind of meeting, you know, resentments do build up and <laughs> people get a little, you know, quick with the tongue when drinking is involved. And, you know, they decide that it's finally time to really put it to the test of who is actually the scariest author. Well, one of them actually happens to work in the computer industry and informs them of a new technology called Arcranium, which is artificial intelligence that allows the author to hook into the computer while the computer stimulates their mind to help create their greatest creation, their scariest story. Well, so but, it's, uh, it's already in them. It just has to be it, sussed out with the stimulation. It, yeah. So okay. you're an inhibited. Arcranium can bring out stories that you heard as a child, any setting that you've ever been involved in, any movie you've ever seen, any scenario that you've ever been witness to or heard of and access it immediately, taking all of that and your own creation and fuse it into one and on the spot create a story. But not only can it do that, it can allow other people to join in and become the characters of the story. And that is how they decide who is the scariest of them all. Interesting. Yeah. But you got to remember the safe word, because if you get hurt inside our cranium, you get hurt inside the real world. Oh. Yeah. Okay. So they're just kind of connected to uh, like electrodes, I guess, something like that? Yeah. Well, there's a bodysuit that you have to wear, mm -hmm. and there's a heart monitor, there's a brain stem monitor. Mm. They're all padded to you in different spots in the suit. And then, you know, of course, you're given a drug to put you under. And you said release date in January? January 3rd is the release date of our cranium. All right. Well, we will definitely be keeping an eye out for that one. So as we've been talking about, you are the owner of Last Waltz Publishing, the press that's responsible for publishing most of these great works that we've been talking about. Can you tell me about the etymology of the name as well as how you started the company? I wrote a story called The Last Waltz, mm -hmm. and it's a story that actually doesn't move linear forward in time. It's one that actually starts at the end and moves backward. And it's kind of a play on the song that's played at this couple's wedding, which is a waltz. And I ended up naming the story The Last Waltz because, you know, the story does not end well. But given that, somewhere deep down, that comes from the name of an album and a movie by a group called The Band, which was called The Last Waltz that came out sometime, I want to say, in the 70s. Originally, they were the backup band for Bob Dylan. Oh. And they came out on their own and they had a movie and an album titled The Last Waltz that had a lot of celebrity guests. I think Joe Cocker's in there, Mick Jagger, or Linda Ronstadt. And not that, you know, it was one of the albums or movies that really stood out to me, but it just kind of popped out when I was coming up with this title. So somewhere in there is a fusion of my own short story coming from their album. And I just love the name of it. I like The Last Waltz reminds me of, it feels gothic to me. You know? oh, yeah. It feels a bit surreal. Something different about it. You know, I hear the name Last Waltz and I know, okay, you know, you're not just an extreme horror. 
title. You know, I wanted to translate that into, you know, a little more old world style narratives rather than just something that we're not. Mm-hmm. Well, I was told by Heather Miller that she was drawn to Last Waltz because of the unique content that you publish. So what kind of content are you looking for? Well, you know, first of all, I mean, I'm drawn to what I like mm-hmm. and I like narratives and I like atmosphere it being told in the story. I want an author who, you know, relies on scenery and the five senses and bringing out all that suspense rather than jump scares, atmosphere rather than trigger warnings and gore. (laughs) (laughs) I, I, I want to be, I want suspense. I grew up on stories like something wicked this way comes and, you know, Edgar Allan Poe. So I like gothic tales, but I like these told by new voices doing them in fresh new ways. Hmm. So yeah, I want to read something and I want to be drawn in and I want that to happen, you know, on that first page and a first couple paragraphs. And I want to connect emotionally to the story. I'm not looking for nausea. <laughs> That's exactly what I was going to say. I was going to, but I was going to try to say it in a uh, more eloquent way. You know, I was oh, going to try to say, you, you no, go ahead and say it eloquent. Yeah. I, I, I didn't have the words for it, but yeah, no, exactly. I don't want the, uh, a physical reaction like that. You know, I don't want to be disgusted. I want to be emotionally drawn mm-hmm. to the characters and the atmosphere and the scenery. And I want to be pulled into the story. Okay. Well, how do you come across authors? Are they people that contact you or do you keep an eye out and kind of scout for talent? Yes. And yes. Yes. Um, and yes. All right. Yes. And yes, definitely. You know, I mean, the first author that I connected with was Diana only. And we met of all places on TikTok. Like she had a couple TikToks and I was making TikToks and I'm like horrible at TikTok. So, uh, <laughs> but I was promoting Abigail and she was promoting, she was in the magazine Stranger with Friction. And we're like, just started chatting and we're like, hey, let's trade stories and read each other's. And I read her story and I was like, yeah, she's got a fresh voice. This is really cool. Like something that Diana would always do was like, you know, she'd have like a paragraph of narrative and then it's a one line of inner thought Mm. you know and there's so much inner thought that her characters do and it's such a fresh way i said hey you know let's write a book together and we did that so diana and i wrote a book and we each have two short stories and it was called drawn and quartered came out last valentine's day Mm. and you know from there she introduced me to jack wells and i read part one of monochrome noir and i Mm. fell in love with it (laughs) and you know what i don't know when this will air but tomorrow is december 1st as we're recording today on the 30th Mm -hmm. tomorrow jack's series finale comes out of monochrome noir oh number four is tomorrow yeah yeah but yeah i fell in love with jack's prose and his narratives and the story what a creative story you know Mm -hmm. and you know i met matt scott because he was also in the same publishing company with James Carlson and I originally. And honestly, I had hunted Heather Miller for like a good year before she agreed to come put out a book with me. But uh, And how did you get wind of her? Because she was kind of telling me about this. You know, I hope I tell the same story that she did. But uh, <laughs> I saw her on Facebook doing reviews you know, and I like the way she reviewed books. Okay. And she reviewed a couple of mine and, you know, we got to talking a bit and I saw what she liked, you know, she liked a lot of the same things I did. And we both agreed, like we both have the same favorite book of all time, which is Something Wicked This Way Comes by Ray Bradbury. For me, definitively, the book that encapsulates the feeling of Halloween that we all had as children, Mm -hmm. you know, like that mysterious, spooky, well, I'm speaking for the whole damn world here, but I shouldn't (laughs) do that. So Heather and I have bonded over this a lot. And so we're both huge fans of Gothic. And I said, I want to publish it, you know, let's put something out. And I, I don't know 
why it didn't happen right away. I think because I hadn't convinced her yet. But, you know, I think after she saw what I was about and not being an extreme publication, and I'm not knocking any publications that put out extreme horror and spider punk because, Mm -hmm. you know, there's great publishers out there who are doing that. And at the moment, that's just not, you know, what I'm doing. But I think Heather appreciated that I was kind of removed from that genre and going with more of a gothic feel for our horror. And I think that's what initially drew us together as authors and publisher and author. Well, can you walk me through the process that an author goes through from the point that they make contact with you all the way to the publishing of the book? Yeah, certainly there's a couple ways that an author might reach out or, you know, that we might get in contact. So, you know, there's the submission point. And of course, it's got to be, you know, something that I'm interested in. So an author would probably hit me with a query and say, look, I've got this story. It's this many words long. It's this genre. And this is what happens. If it's something I'm interested in and I think I can work with, I would say, yeah, send me a couple chapters or send me your manuscript, at which point I'd read it. If I really like it, chances are we move on from there. If I'm like, I like it, I think it needs work, I'll let another couple people in the company read it and get their thoughts on it. If it's something I think it needs a little refining, I would go back to the author and say, I think we can do something, but I think this needs to change, or I think you should consider trying this. And, you know, provided they're willing to work with me and we can move forward, then we'll start that process. If I think it's great, just needs editing, and I'll tell them I love it. I want to publish it. And we talk about a date. We talk about the terms of our uh, agreement. I would send them a contract detailing the percentage that they make, what we plan to do as a publishing company, where we intend to publish it, and how we intend to promote it. And from there, we'll set a publishing date and put the book out, which can take anywhere from a year or even more to do from start to finish. And so does Last Waltz have its own resources for like editing and book covers and stuff like that? I use several different editors. All are great, you know, just, you know, you never know who's going to be available at the time. So mm-hmm. there's a couple different editors. We also have, you know, some of our own authors are quite proficient at editing who we use in-house. At times, we have several cover artists who are fantastic that we go to. So we've got that. I'm pretty darn good with the formatting these days. That's been my forte lately. And, you know, the advertising, that's something we are all always learning more and more about. But yeah, you know, it's actually, it takes a lot of people to give birth to one book, at least for us. And I think the more hands you get into something, the more of a beautiful creation you come out with. Everybody's working together. Each release gets better, I feel. So looking forward to what the future brings and the next releases. We've got a few authors that we've signed recently who will be coming out next year added to the label. And of course, some of our other authors will be releasing other books in the coming year. And I'm hoping Heather and Jack both have releases coming up next year. I know they're mm-hmm. both always writing. Yeah. So. Well, circling back to your own writing, where is the strangest place you've ever gotten a story idea? Hmm. Wow. Well, you know, I'll tell you the strangest place I've ever written a story was oh, actually. Oh, okay. That's even better. Let's hear it. Yeah. So, you know, like I said, I did the county jail thing. So a lot of my stories were written while I was locked up because mm-hmm. I went from county jail to the prison system and spent some time in there. I wrote a series towards the end of my incarceration, and that was at a time where I was in the halfway house and we were supposed to be going out of the building and going to either work or going to school. And it was March of 2020 and we got shut down because COVID broke out in the city of Newark Mm -hmm. and shut down. So we were 
quarantined inside of the halfway house. I had, a, what was it called? An Astra Smart or something like that. So I had this little tiny word processor mm-hmm. that showed you like three lines at a time. So during this time that we were under quarantine in the halfway house, nowhere to go, 270 guys on top of each other, like pandemonium, like screaming. I would put my headphones on, crank up the music every night from six to 11, and my fingers just like flowed. And I did this for six months and I came up with a 510,000 word series. Jesus. Um, and what and, was the chaos you were talking about going on in the background? So, you know, I was in a room with 12 other dudes. Oh, okay. Uh, you know, and you don't talk softly, you know, because <laughs> that's a sign. That's a sign of weakness yeah. when you're locked up, you know. So guys just yelling at each other and, and just, you know, posturing and screaming to be heard over one another. So I blocked it out with headphones, you know, music cranked to 10. And I wrote this thing in like a uh, fluid stream of consciousness. That's like some Jack Kerouac shit right there. (laughs) You know, it was crazy. So, so I've been actually working on this series for like two and a half to three years now. And I've redrafted it down from 510 to 320. And now it's broken into four books. Book one is in the hands of the editor right now who's going to be sending it back to me with the recommended changes. And uh, I'm hoping to be releasing this next year, but it's actually like the strangest origination of a story. And it's so massive because like I sat down with the intention of, Hey, let me write a short story. And I wrote the first paragraph and then I don't know, it just kept coming Mm -hmm. and I get to the certain point and then I'd stop and I'd be like, all right, what happens next? And I'd spend like the day thinking of like 20 possible scenarios that would come next and what were the five most sensible scenes. Then the next night, I'd just write those five scenes and then I'd do it the next day. Then I'd do it the next day. And before you knew it, I had a damn saga on my hand. (laughs) That was pretty good, but I'm really looking forward to the release of this. And I'm hoping beyond hope that next year, is finally the year that I release my series. Nice. Well, this uh, this question's kind of strange, I suppose. I'm just curious, which writer or writers, in your opinion, do you feel embody the archetype of the true writer? And this would include demeanor, the way they conduct their personal life, their writing style, their writing medium. Mm. I don't think there is a writer that does not embody that. You know, when I think of Hemingway or, geez, that's hard. You know, I grew up on King and uh-huh. like, you know. Well, there you go. If you, yeah. If you, if you read King, his uh, book on writing and you find out about his schedule, how he gets up every morning and he shuts the blinds and he turns off the phone and he closes the door and he spends that chunk of the morning just writing. And it doesn't matter if it's perfect or not. He gets that out. And he does it every day. And he says, oh, yeah, well, maybe I take off on my birthday. Who am I kidding? I don't take off on my birthday. He writes every day. <laughs> and that, to me, embodies what a writer needs to do. They need to write every day. Mm-hmm. And if you're not writing every day, at least be redrafting every day or editing your work every day or doing something involved with the creation of the story every day. Somebody asked me, they said, why do you write? And my answer is, you know, I don't know why I do, but I know that I can't go through the day without writing. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, I do it because I have to. And if I try to go through the day without writing, I feel like I've cheated myself Mm -hmm. in some way. So, you know, regardless of what I'm doing, is any good or not? That doesn't really (laughs) matter (laughs) because I think at the end of the day, you know, I'm really not doing it for anybody else. I'm doing it for me. Yeah, that's one of the things that really cemented Cormac McCarthy as a true writer in my eyes was, you know, he very rarely did interviews, especially not like on camera. So the one time he did it for the road with um, my mind just went blank. Oprah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The uh, the one time. (laughs) Yeah. The one time he did an on camera interview with Oprah 
it was because his book, The Road, was in her book of the month club or something like that. And, you know, he's just kind of sitting there like he's an introvert, but he's not shy. He's just kind of answering her questions in a real matter of fact way. And she's like, do you even care if people read your stuff? It's like, well, I mean, <laughs> it's nice. I, you know, it's like, he's he's a writer. He writes because he can't not write. It's his passion. Yeah. I mean, you know, ideally we hope that we touch people, but I'm happy when that one random person says that, you know, something in the book touched them on some kind of level. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't. He may be a singularity. <laughs> if it, if you're doing it to gain notoriety or trying to get some kind of fame, that's probably not the reason to get into writing. That's um, definitely not it. Anything you do with a passion, you've got to do it for yourself first. Mm -hmm. And it's like David Bowie said, I don't want to write what you like. I want to write what I like and then make you like it. You know? <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I'm like, you know, that's what I want to do. I want to write what I want to write. And if other people happen to like that along the way, then mm -hmm. bonus, you know? Yeah. Well, since you're not necessarily used to writing the real visceral, splattery type of prose, when you were writing the very viscerally descriptive scenes, like the one in the beginning of Deacon, what sources did you draw from? Um, hmm. Yeah, you know, uh, I don't know. I, I'm good with the adjectives and verbs, but... Um, Surprisingly, it came out really easily, uh, which makes me wonder if I should switch genres, you know. Um, <laughs> you know, I don't know, even though it's not my typical book that I would read or book that I would write, I can dig a movie like that. I'm all down with that kind of uh, zombie or slasher movie. And I just, just went with it like it came, you know. Mm. So... As far as like talking about particular viscera or the way, you know, this separated from that, you didn't have to do any research. You kind of like. Yeah, no, that just came out. And in doing so, you know, I kind of like to mix a little tongue in cheek kind of humor in it, too. So <laughs> to take the edge off, yeah. maybe, you know, because I can't take it all that seriously when, you know, <laughs> a spear is ripped out of somebody's guts and they're gallbladder and their stomach bursts open and <laughs> spills at their feet and they're left looking at it for a second before yeah. their knees buckle, you know, but yeah. it's easy to picture in that sense. It was easy to write about too. Um, mm. Even though, you know, I don't typically do it, but I fell into it pretty easily. I don't know if I compare to what other splatter authors are doing. I think I am probably quite tame compared to a lot of others, but what I wrote came kind of easily. Yeah. Yeah. I was curious. I interviewed Daniel Volpe and he had a book called plastic monsters about this real sick, twisted plastic surgeon. And he was watching videos of botched surgeries so he could get down the technical details of what exactly this twisted guy was doing to patients while they were under. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, whether you like Splatter or not, you should definitely check that one out. That is a great book. Yeah, Daniel is a great writer. Left to You is a, an amazing book if you haven't read that one. No, yet. I need to. I definitely yeah. need to. His writing style is amazing and so direct. You mm -hmm. know, it really pulls you in. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, because, you know, when you're, you've got guys as great as him and Aaron Beauregard, you know, mm -hmm. it's, I'm like, oh, geez. I can't compete with that. So let me just, <laughs> let me do something different. You know, so <laughs> yeah. So that's another reason why I don't try to even go into that genre because you've got such great writers dominating that, the field. So have you ever written or had any interest in writing screenplays? You know, when I was a kid and I first started writing some of my things, I tried writing like, continuations of movies that I thought would be good, but I never really put any serious effort into writing an actual screenplay, certainly not mm. in my adult life. 
Would you ever explore and offer to have one of your books adapted? Yeah, I certainly would. I think a lot of the shorter stories and some of the books would make really great, almost episodes like of uh, a Twilight Zone kind of show. Mm. You know, if, maybe if Jordan Peele's listening and, uh, yeah. you know, he wants to. Oh, I wish he was. <laughs> <laughs> if I could claim him as part of my audience, I'd be doing well. <laughs> yeah, hell yeah. Uh, yeah, I would love to. You know, of course, um, we hold out hope for that at some point. But, uh, yeah, I would love to. And actually, you know, as the series that I wrote that I was telling you about, that I had every intention of that more so in a... uh series a televised kind of series because it relies a lot on dialogue and uh scenery setting mm. so i think it would make a great netflix series one day, <laughs> but uh, yeah it's gonna make a great book first nice well what is the life of damon manx like outside of writing and publishing there's not much else going on <laughs> workaholic are you well yeah, but I've always been. I mean, even when I wasn't in the publishing business, I was always a workaholic. Yet I get up between five and six. I meet up with my girlfriend and we go to my father's house and walk his dog for him. And we take the dog to the cemetery and let the dog, you know, run around between the headstones for a while. Now, is this and, the uh, little white haired ankle biter? Yeah, that's uh, okay. the one. That, gotcha. That's Charlie. <laughs> uh, that's my dad's faithful companion. Okay. But, uh, you know, as he's getting a little older, Charlie pulls a little too hard. So I go up there and do that in the morning. So do that. You know, I'm back here by eight o'clock and I'm writing or I'm editing or I'm reading a submission or I'm, <laughs> I'm formatting or I'm working out an advertisement or something to do with Last Waltz Publishing or my own stories, which are now synonymous for each other really and i'm doing that at least till five or so and then you know have some dinner and try to pull myself away from it but you know eight to five all day long i'm doing something like that and, and i'm blessed because i have been given the opportunity where i can focus this attention on what i love to do well are you a fan of film and if so what is your favorite genre and subgenre? yeah i am a fan of film Lately, I have a hard time finding something that does it for me. But I've always been a fan of the dystopian films. Like I said, you know, growing up, it was the early zombie movies, The Night of the Living Dead, The Dawn of the Dead. I love the 28 Days Later, the 28 Weeks Later. I like the remakes of The Dawn of the Dead and The Night of the Living Dead. And I love The Walking Dead up until Negan took Glenn out and then we just played games afterwards. <laughs> but I mean, that first season of The Walking Dead is just fantastic. You know, that terror when you don't know what's going on, you know, with Rick in that first episode, that was great. Lately, you know, I've seen Train to Busan mm -hmm. and that's like fantastic. I love that. But, you know, I've got to say like, even though it's not film it's still television or a series you know i love breaking bad and i loved better call saul and mm -hmm. i just think those are so well written and so well put together and so believable the characters are just so believable i guess the main genre still is dystopian or zombie horror subgenre being maybe crime fiction mm -hmm. I'm, I'm not sure you know i mean it's i'm all over the board because <laughs> then i'll go to a comedy and then I'll go to a coming-of-age story, you know. I mean, I still love Forrest Gump, you know. I think that's one of the best movies ever made, you know. And I'm all over it. It depends on what the mood is. Gotcha. It's hard for me to narrow it down. Well, so Heather Miller told me this, and I'm pretty sure Jack Wells did as well. Whenever they brought you up, they said, that's Manx with an M. Which, I mean, I'm like, well, how else would it be spelled? Exactly. <laughs> is there, well, is how, there a joke behind that? What's going the, on? No, the only <laughs> other joke, the joke is just, you know, being a goofball and, and, <laughs> and both of them saying, oh, yeah, I'm going to be recording on the podcast today. I go, well, make sure you get it right. That's Manx with an M. Because, of course, why would they be talking about me, you know, because uh, it's it's about them. So, uh, oh, OK, yeah, I, I just had to throw that in to make sure. And, and well. Heather's like, well, how else would it be like wanks? 
you know. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, I thought I, maybe I was missing something. Spanked. <laughs> yeah. No, it was just, um, you know, me being a goofball and uh, them playing along with it. Gotcha. Well, what is something that people would not suspect or assume about you? You know, man, at this point, I've. Uh, I, I, I it's all out on the table so, yeah i put so much out on the table and that's you know like just i think that's my brand you know i am the guy who talks about this and talks about that and reveals a lot because i've dealt with a lot of inner demons and at this point i mean most people do know that in the early 90s i was in a car accident and i smashed into ronald reagan's limousine I did not know that. That's fucking amazing. <laughs> That's yeah. Um, and I was driving a giant truck in Manhattan and the cars in front of me stop. And I don't even notice that they're limos and out gets a secret service guy and he stops me and out steps Ronald and Nancy and they run into the building and I wave. And five minutes later, I'm trying to drive past the limos and I scraped down the whole damn side of it and took off the mirror and, Oh, and, okay. Uh, yeah. So you didn't you know. strike them while they were in it? No. Okay. They got out. <laughs> they got out and they went into the building. I was going to say, why isn't the Secret Service throwing you on the ground? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And they, it just you. happened so fast. Uh, that's that funny, though. Wreck. Yeah. And like um, in 1999, I was on Wheel of Fortune. And no I. Oh, uh, shit. Yeah. I won a Chevy Tile. Shut up. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah, my so. God. Yeah, so, like, all these great things have happened to me. Well, I don't know if it's great to hit the president's car, but um, <laughs> I mean, good it's things a story. have happened to me. <laughs> and then I've had the good and the bad, and mm -hmm. all of that makes the story. Yes. Well, what is your current goal in life? Mm. All right, so I've just finished up a bunch of fiction. Mm -hmm. My goal is to make the foray into nonfiction and put together that memoir about my time and about my hitting the president's car, about me <laughs> being on Wheel of Fortune, about me having all these great things and then losing it all to addiction and finding myself in the prison system uh -huh. and then finding recovery and turning my life around and taking that second chance and spreading that word of hope to try to help others. That's what I would like to do. I'd like to take my story now and use it to possibly inspire or give some hope to some people who might be struggling with addiction, alcoholism, criminal behavior, and hopefully offer them a little insight as to possible alternatives that they can take where they don't have to go down that same rock bottom hole that I did. Well, Damon, it has been a blast talking with you. <laughs> I hope I didn't lay too much on your plate. <laughs> no, I asked for it. I put the plate out there. <laughs> Fantastic. I had a great time talking to you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So as we bring the show to a close, is there anything you'd like to plug or let your readers know about and reiterate some things you've mentioned already? Yeah, definitely. You know, if you're an author or you're somebody interested in checking out some of the material that we have at Last Waltz Publishing, you can check us out at our website, www.lastwaltzpublishing.com. I am on all your social media platforms. You can check me out, Damon Manx. I'm on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok. I'm easy to get a hold of and shoot me a message. I love to contact and make new friends. So reach out to me. Let's talk horror. <laughs> Sounds awesome. Well, listeners at home, all links will be in the description. And Damon, thank you again for joining me. Thank you for having me. And thank you to everyone that tuned in. If you liked today's episode, please be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Stay healthy, stay sane, and as always, thank you for listening. See you next time.